If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Uh, this Bible that Charles gave to me is large print, so I can't read it without my glasses. Uh, to the book of Matthew, in the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew, as you are likely well aware, uh, this is the parable of uh, the soils. Uh, and it deals with the effect of the Word of God upon the lives of those who hear the Word of God. And then here's a question that we are to ask ourselves this morning. Uh, given uh, that God is sovereign over the response that people give to the Bible, are we then therefore not accountable for the way that we respond to the Bible read and the Bible preached? And of course, the answer to that is you'll find out in a minute. Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 1 down through verse 23. Let's hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Thank you. In that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Still other seeds fell on good soil and produced grains, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came to send and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he who has in abundance. But the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has become dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is, why what was sown, this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but he cares. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word until it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands that he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundred, in another case sixty, in another thirty. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text.
pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray as we learn this morning in Sunday school for your forgiveness for any flippancy we have in coming into the presence of the great Creator, our great God who is infinite in holiness, infinite in righteousness and grace and mercy. Oh, Lord, we ask for your grace now as we consider this portion of Scripture. May it be, O oh God, that our hearts would not be dull. May it be, Heavenly Father, that our ears would not be slow to hear we pray, O oh God, for your grace and that you would be with me as I preach this text, be with your congregation as they hear it, that it might be, O oh God, for our spiritual good. And pray, O oh Lord, as we consider into these few days, the ninth day of 2022, where is the place and the importance of the word in our life? How much is it impacting the way that we think and live. May these questions, we face them, and may they be answered, O God, and may it be that we're honest with ourselves. O God, thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are your goals for uh, 2022? We have just gotten into it. It's seven days into the new year. I do not make resolutions. I've learned not to do that, so I don't do it anymore. Why bother? I can't remember what uh, we would be anyway. So why bother? Uh, what we are called to do, rather, I think, as God's people, as we read in the book of Titus, we are to live lives that are self-controlled. And we are to live lives that are centered around who we are in Christ Jesus. Uh, so what is it that you have in your own mind as you face the new year? Uh, as we recognize that 2021 is gone, good riddance to us as far as I am concerned. There were a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties along that way. But still, even in times of trial, even in times of difficulty, and we're called to those times, uh, we have the responsibility uh, to respond with faith. And the only way they can respond appropriately in faith is by understanding and leaning upon the scriptures that God has given to us. So what is your goal for the new year? Is it, as we live in such an affluent society, is it the acquisition of more and more money? Not so that uh, you can help people that are in need, not so that you can give to the church more money than you've been able to before, but rather, as James puts it, so you can spend it on your own selfishness. You remember what it says in the scripture, you don't have because you don't ask her, you ask her throne motives. There is, in this country, and in the church, way too much fondness for money. I'm convinced of that. Or perhaps you're one who is a pleasure seeker. That's what's first and foremost in your mind, is the things you can gather for yourself and gain out of uh, the world, because the world is just so terribly attractive. And it is. But it's destined to pass away. Christ told us that. Do we keep before our hearts and minds with any type of regularity and with any type of consciousness and the necessity of it being there, do we keep in mind that these things that we treasure so much are destined to come to an end? It's intended to be that way. Hebrews, it is appointed for man to die once 
and then the judgment. Don't be surprised when your time comes. It's, it's promised in the scriptures. It's appointed for man to die once in the judgment. So the question is, what follows the judgment? What helps us to prepare for that day? Well, it's not the acquisition of things in this world. It's not the building up of supplies for ourselves by any means. I'm not saying you shouldn't plan. I'm not saying that at all. But where is the hope of your life? Is it in the things that are eternal? Is it in the things that come from Christ and from God? Or is it, if you're honest with yourself, so focused here that you just don't really have time to think about or the care to think about those things that are to come? We do live our lives, do we not, as if we're going to live forever here. And we're not. That's a good thing. That's a good thing, because what we look forward to, as Dabney says in his little article, his little, in his biography of Jackson, where he went May the 10th, 1863, the Lord's Day, to the land where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. That's where he went. The blessed country that belongs to our God. Well, uh, the setting of this is it's been a very long day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, chapter 11 and 12, uh, Christ is teaching the disciples. He's told John is in prison. John's disciples come and they say, shall we, are you the one or shall we look for another? Uh, uh, I didn't anticipate this. How many people become Christians? Well, I didn't know it was going to be like this. This is not what I thought Christianity was like at all. And so here's John, you know, he's in prison. For preaching, for confronting this man about him having his brother's wife, and now he's in jail. And he says, the disciples, are you the one? Or shall we look for another? You know what Jesus says to him. Go tell John. The blind receive their sight. The ears, the, the deaf ears begin to hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. And so Christ continues on and he heals people in these, these two chapters, is chapter 11 and then 12. And then he begins, he gets into chapter 13. And what he's doing here is explaining why it is that there are some who hear and understand the word of God and others, including the Pharisees, that don't understand the word of God. Our Lord's method of teaching is that of teaching parables. And he quotes from Isaiah as to why that's the case, so that hearing them may not hear. And so Isaiah's ministry was one of judgment. And so as Isaiah's word went out to the people of old, it was a condemnation upon them. That's what Jesus is saying here to the disciples. Uh, it's given to you by God's grace to understand these things, but to those whose hearts are hardened, it is to condemn them even more. It's not he who made uh, the potter have the right over the clay to do with one an object of honor, one an object of dishonor. It was Boyce that said, A parable is a story from real life and real life situations with a moral and spiritual meaning. Jesus, the master teacher, used them very well. Indeed, he did. Well, let's see this morning as we pay no attention to that clock whatsoever. I'm going to finish this sermon. Okay. Your supper, your lunch can wait a little while. 
The Word of God enlightens our minds. And so on the one hand, you've got condemnation that comes from the proclamation of the Word to those whom judgment is given, but to those for whom grace is given, conversion, sanctification, strength, and encouragement. And so the Word of God should always produce spiritual maturity in the life of the Christian. That Word of God, when it goes out, should always produce spiritual maturity in the life of the Christian. As the believer listens in humility before the proclamation of that Word and prays to God, may this Word search my heart so I can see if there is within me any lawlessness, any hardness, Anything for which you would not be pleased with me having it there. Oh God, use that word proclaimed to me this morning to bring conviction, to bring encouragement, to bring strengthening, to bring what is needful in my life that I might become more like Christ. So it is that every time a believer sits under the proclamation of the word and it's preached faithfully, the end product of that should be spiritual maturity. And then three things this morning from this text. The gospel of God distributed, the gospel of God deposited, and the gospel of God developed. And the first thing then, the gospel of God distributed or delivered. As you know, the seed in the parable is analogous to the word of God. Christ is talking about the proclamation or the distribution of the Word of God around those that are in the area at the time of uh, His life. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Uh, the good news that was introduced into the world the night Christ was born. It really, the night He was uh, conceived, but there was after He came forth from His mother's womb. And there the angels were declaring the peace of God. There the angels were declaring God with us. Emmanuel, God has come to tabernacle with his people. And so that's the message that was to be delivered. The seed that goes out to the different soils is the gospel, the word of God. And this word that is given demands notice. It demands people pay attention to it, you see, because its origins are from God himself. Its origins are from of old. As we try to grasp going back to eternity past, that there was never a moment in the mind of God, if we can think even in those terms, the mind of God, that from all eternity, determined to create, determined to, uh, for the fall to take place, determined to redeem a people through himself, through the person of Jesus Christ. And so here, that's the word that is to be scattered among uh, the people, again, whose origin is from of old. Psalm 25, 6, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, which is from of old. It should blow our minds to think of this. You think of this about yourself. There was never a moment when God did not love you. Never a moment. When God didn't look at you with affection and compassion and love. And so that Kathy Barta is not someone that came into being. I don't know how old you are. Those were 25 years ago. And then God loved her after she came to faith. No. Isaiah. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31.3 The Lord appeared to him from far, saying, I have loved you 
with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you to myself in loving kindness. So it's not something that we have to try to merit or something that we have to try to earn. But there, the love of God for his people is eternal. As it says here, your steadfast love that has been from of old. God loved us in eternity past Again, Psalm 93, 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Isaiah 36, 16, 63, 16. For you are our God through Abraham. Though Abraham does, does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, O Lord, you are our Father, our Redeemer. From of old is your name. So this business of uh, God at some point coming to love us uh, is simply wrong. He loved us from eternity past. Before the world was, he loved us. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, the ancient of days. This is a reference to Christ. And so the message has to be taken into account seriously because the author of it are not Jewish rabbis. The author of it is not Moses. The author of it is God himself who gave that word and see to it that it was kept faithfully through the giving of the scriptures. But the origin of it was from God himself. All scriptures God breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, so that the man of God may be adequate Equipped for every good work. And so the end result then, or the byproduct, or the product of us hearing the word of God preached should be good works. Good works. Works that are pleasing to God. Second Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it is that word, and that word alone, that has the message of redemption. You remember when uh, 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 Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Uh, and so many of them departed and went away. And uh, he said to the disciples, aren't you going to go too? Aren't you going to cut and run? And what Peter said to him, Lord, where, where, where shall we go? You have the words of life. Where shall we go? And, of course, it was a rhetorical question. The answer to be there would be no place to go. So the Bible itself and the message given in the Bible itself is a message of salvation. It's the message of hope for a sinful and lost world. And it is that as we look at the Scriptures, we have been redeemed Redemption is very closely tied to salvation. Redemption is more specific. Redemption denotes the means by which salvation has been achieved, namely through a payment or a ransom. And so that our life of redemption, our life of salvation did not come cheaply. Somebody paid for it. And it was Christ that paid for it as he underwent the miseries of hell. And suffering in such a horrible way that we can't possibly imagine. Um, but had he not suffered that uh, hellacious experience on the cross of Calvary, the condemnation from God, uh, then we would be without hope in the world. So you were bought 
by the price of the blood of the Savior. And if that doesn't in some way encourage you to obedience, I don't know what will, at least to fight and to try. You remember when Reed joined the church? And I said to him, the fight is beginning. You remember I said that? The fight is beginning. Yeah. You know when it ends? When he dies. Or when Christ comes back. That's when, it, that's when it's over with. The fight begins. And it is not an easy trick. As we deal with things in this world that are rather difficult. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own if you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. And what, you know, people use this text and they talk about dieting. Uh, they talk about exercise. That has nothing to do with what this says at all. Nothing. It's talking about a man uniting himself with a prostitute. That's the context of it. Context is helpful if you understand the scriptures. Do you not know you were bought with a price? Therefore quit going to the prostitutes. And honor God with your body. That's what the whole context means. It's not whether you have a malt for lunch, something like that. It makes no difference. Well, I, uh, yeah, I'd love to get a malt. I'm not supposed to have them, though. If I do, don't tell Melinda if I get one. So how are the means of redemption presented to us in the Bible? They are pictured in the Old Testament. They are prophesied by the prophets, and they are presented to us with the arrival of Christ into the world. So here is God's Word, the message of redemption, the message of salvation, and it is broadcast in various ways. The first way is preaching. The primary means of grace in the life of the believer is sitting under the proclamation of the Word. And so there, the, uh, Paul says uh, to Timothy, uh, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready at all times, whether they want to hear it or not, whether you want to do it or not, preach the word. Be ready at all times to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim his word. That's the primary duty of the minister or the preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his job. That's what he is called to do. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So that is the primary means of uh, the preacher of the gospel. And since that is the primary responsibility of the pastor, uh, then it must be that he spends appropriate time in preparation for preaching. Woody Marker, uh, and you know Woody and I have been friends a long, long time. Uh, he was in Tuscumbia, Helen Keller's birthplace. I was in Muscle Shoals, the birthplace of uh, music. You know, recording studio, I was there. Uh, anyway, I went to see him one time. His secretary would let me in. Because between 2 o'clock, I mean between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, study time for Woody. She would not let me in to see him. I said, do you know who I am? <laughs> I said, do you know he's waiting on me? And so it came clear, and she said, okay, you can go, man. But she would not, no phone calls, no visitors, nothing between 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, because that was his study time. Well, the pastor has to have times of uninterrupted study, uninterrupted prayer, uninterrupted writing, and you'll love this one, uninterrupted speaking from the pulpit. I just kind of made that one up. 
uninterrupted speaking. But again, time to study, time to pray, time to write, because the primary means, again, of the elder of the minister is preaching the gospel. And that word is also broadcast by preaching. Uh, uh, Diathike, it is didactic is a term, is capable of being uh, something that is uh, instructed and the one who is qualified to do that. This is the elder of the church. Teaching the word of God is the elder's primary responsibility. Not preaching, but teaching the word of God is the elder's primary responsibility. And here, quote, and this Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, apt to teach. Paul describes one who is able both to understand the word of God and communicate that knowledge that he has in his heart and mind to people, to correcting, uh, to take opportunities of giving instruction which means he himself has to have been instructed as well, Well well-instructed, well-informed, a scholar, if you will, of the Bible, because he has to know it so well if he is going to be able to deliver it. One commentator, one one professor said this, ministers are not, not the only ones who must be able to teach. The qualification is for ruling elders as well. Their teaching takes place in a variety of contexts, such as Sunday school, classes, and home Bible studies, they also teach whenever they disciple, evangelize, and make pastoral visits. And for all these duties, ruling elders must be able to teach. John Calvin. In the epistle of Titus, doctrine is expressly mentioned. Why? Because there's false doctrine in the church. The elders cannot allow false teaching into the church of Jesus Christ. We had a situation here a long time ago. And I don't even think we're even in this building. But somebody was convinced that biblically you had to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. And she had a diet. And it was printed up, and she was giving it to people. I said, you can't do that. I said, you cannot hand this out. I said, it's not biblical. It's, it's just not right. You can't, you can't do this. And I told you, I know I told you about this, that there was a church in South Carolina. You had the non-sugar eaters and the sugar eaters. Uh, and it became so bad, the sugar eaters had their own special place in their table, and the non-sugar eaters had their own special place. And it caused division of the church over eating sugar or not eating sugar. If you want to eat sugar, I don't care. If you don't, I don't care about that either. It's up to you. But it can't become an issue in the life of the church when the church doesn't make an issue out of it. God doesn't command us not to eat sugar. I'm glad he doesn't. So you see the difficulty there. And so it was that we went beyond what the Bible teaches, and so that had to be dealt with when somebody came in and began handing out diets for the Old Testament dietary laws. And it simply is not true. Calvin, in the epistle of Titus, doctrine is expressly mentioned here. He only speaks briefly about skill in communicating instruction. It is not enough to have profound learning uh, if it not be accompanied by talent for teaching. There are many who, either because their utterance is defective or because they have no good mental abilities, not kind of Calvin, or they should simply, uh, or they simply cannot teach truth plainly. They have the charge of governing God's people. Those who have charge of governing God's people ought to be qualified for teaching the word as well. And the last thing is, it is broadcast uh, just generally by people. You know, that's the person in the pew. 
has the responsibility of giving forth the word of God. And we are not to be intimidated by people. Uh, you should at least be able to give an account for the hope that you have within you. Everybody who is a Christian should be able to do that. If they argue with you, don't argue. Say, I'm sorry, you're just blind. The things are true. Then walk away before they beat you up. So, the second thing is uh, the gospel of God deposited. Uh, and this, you get into the different reactions or the different uh, types of soils once the word is given out. Use the analogy that those who were sitting there listening to him would understand. It might be even that in a distant field there was someone scattering their seed. And Jesus sees that, the master teacher, and says, well, this is what happens when the word of God is delivered. And so there are some places where, you know, you see the, the seed is packed so hard down that uh, it can't sink into the soil. I tell people all the time, I grew up on the outskirts of heaven, not just in Hattiesburg, in 700 Myrtle Street. Uh, that was the special gates right there, right next to Glory. And there was the J.C. Park that was uh, uh, just a stone's throw away from me. And in the park, they had, uh, they had a basketball goal set up there. And so many years, so many people had played there that there was no grass. It was hard-packed dirt. I mean, it was like concrete. Of course, you could play basketball easily there because it was like concrete. And played there for years and years and years. That's the type of soil that Christ is talking about. When they would uh, walk by fields, they would have pathways and people walking on it. Well, the dirt gets packed down very, very hard. And you know what's going to happen? He puts seed there as he throws it out. It's not going to go anywhere. Well, so that's the first example, and that what happens there is he says that it falls along there, and there's no uh, nothing that can be done except the lead seed sits on top of the ground, and the birds come and eat it away. So that's what Satan does. He just snatches the word away. So there's no impact whatsoever upon that individual that sits, and the word does not do anything or have any effect upon him at all. Well, the other's rocky soil. The stony ground here, as you have probably heard it referred to so many times, uh, these would be places next to perhaps the paths that are so packed down. There'd be rocks in it, and but not be much topsoil there. So the, ski, the, the seed goes there, and it germinates and grows, but because there's no depth to it, their veneer of Christianity is there. And then uh, when it comes up, it says the sun causes it to wither away. No depth of soil. Uh, and uh, it is that uh, there was an excitement when it was first received, uh, but the excitement is short-lived because soon, there soon, uh, it is that it goes away and the word has no lasting impact. And then there's the one uh, that has the thorns with it. And you know the, the analogy there, he says, the cares and tribulation and cares of the world come in and choke the life out of the seed that was sown at one time. So this is the one who is following after Christ and then some type of persecution comes because of the word, perhaps a threat of losing your job, perhaps being made fun of by your neighbors, perhaps people cutting off relationships with you because you're a Christian, or perhaps because of some great trial that comes into your life. And because of the difficulties and worries, it is choked out. And then finally, the last one is that you have seed that falls upon good soil. And so it germinates 
and it grows. What does Christ say here? It produces a product. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty fold, but it produces a product. And so that the word of God in the hearts, delivered to the heart of one who is most sincere, one who is really desiring uh, and by grace has been affected by the word of God. So the gospel of God developed. This is the last point. The gospel of God developed. Wherever the word of God is preached, it brings some type of reaction. Isaiah 55, 10, 11, But as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and does not return, uh, but waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish uh, that for which I purposed. It shall succeed in that for which I sent it. That ought to give you encouragement if you talk to people about Christ. It ain't up to you. To convince somebody of the truthfulness of the gospel, your responsibility is simply to tell it. That's your responsibility. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what he's done for me. Let me tell you about why I can face death and not be afraid. If I'm really trusting like I was supposed to, I can face death and not be afraid at all. So one heart is hardened, but one heart is turned and when it is received and accompanied by God's grace, change is produced. But what must be present then if that's going to take place? Well, it must be that, and that there's understanding. Perfect understanding? No. But a proper understanding. And simply uh, the nuts and bolts of the gospel... Um, uh, the seventh article of the confession on the scriptures, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and open in some place of scripture or another, not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use to the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Not exhaustively, and not perfectly, but accurately. And even John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. That's the gospel. And if you can't do anything else, you can quote that to somebody. You see a lot of football games. You know, they have these big posters up there. John 3, they're breaking the Lord's Day. They're out on a football game on Sunday, but they got the John 3.16 up there. Seems to be terribly inconsistent to me. But at least they're doing what they can, I guess, for the cause of the gospel of Christ. And so thus, again, as I said earlier, thus the battle begins. The struggle, uh, the trials, uh, the temptations. If I may read this to you, we must not be content with the barren orthodoxy and a cold maintenance of correct theological views. We must not be satisfied with clear knowledge, warm feelings, and a decent profession. We must see to it, listen to this, that the gospel we profess to love produces positive fruit in our lives and hearts. This is real Christianity. That the Word of God means something to you, that the Word of God makes a difference in your life and how you think and how you relate to your husband and how you relate to your wife in the manner that you raise your children, in the way that you deal with insults, in the way that you deal with trials. There was a song 
by written not written by this man it was released in 1966 by a fellow named uh, Jack Green and the name of the song she is my everything it's a love song there goes my reason for living you've heard it before and she walks out the door and he's all upset Elvis the boy from Mississippi of course it would be Mississippian that did this changed the words to it I'm going to read some of it to you he changed it like this he is my reason I'm not commenting on Elvis' conversion. I don't know if he was a believer or not. That's not what I'm saying here. But it's interesting what he did with his song, or someone did. He is my reason for living. Oh, he, the king of all kings. I love to be his possession. Oh, he's my everything. I remember my days of darkness without sunshine or sight to lead my way. But a whisper of his voice softly calling to the arms of my maker to stay. He is my reason for living. Oh, he is the king of all kings. I long to be his possession. Oh, he is my everything. After the lightning and thunder, after the last bell has rung, I want to bow down before him and hear him say, well done, well done. He is my reason for living. Oh, he is the king of all kings. I long to be his possession. Oh, he's my everything. I long to be his possession. Oh, he's my everything. And if you want to treat yourself, listen to him sing the song. I heard him sing the other one too, the love song, but this is just superior. And the question for you, do you echo these words of this song that was rewritten for Elvis, where you take it and it speaks all about Christ and a desire to be his? Well, let me tell you this. You are not passive in how you respond to the scriptures. You're not passive at all. You're responsible for how you respond to the Word of God read and the Word of God preached. And if you reject it, it's not God's fault. It's your fault if you reject it. Otherwise, you can be held accountable. We are free agents, says Robert Dabney says, and we do what we choose to do. And so on Sunday, the Lord's Day, as they used to say on Andy Griffith's show, going to preaching. Remember they said that? They wouldn't talk about going to, they were going to preaching. I wouldn't be surprised if it was in South Erie, South Carolina, which is where Andy Griffith grew up, they used similar terms such as that. Well, one thing that I would suggest to you is to recognize Sunday comes the same time every week. It's not like one time it's eight days later, nine days later, and all of a sudden Sunday morning gets you. Is it Sunday already? I had no idea. Well... Same time, same day, same bat channel, same bat place every single week. And so don't let it slip up on you so that you come ill-prepared for worship. Oh, what should you do else in coming? Pray and pray and pray. You know, when you start praying Sunday afternoon when you get home, pray for this word that was preached this morning. You may, not, you may think the sermon was terrible. I did my best. I'm sorry if it came across that way. But you know what I've said, and you pray about this. When you get home, you pray God give you the grace to be one who hears profitably from the Scriptures. And ask Him to change your life by His grace, you see. Every elder should pray that for whoever's in the shepherd group. The pastor should pray it for the entire congregation. I read something recently. The minister's time to pray begins after the sermon is preached. To plead for the people that were sitting there under the proclamation of the Word of God that day. 
And so we have that responsibility. And I would say to this as well that if it is that you have no interest in the gospel, no interest in the scriptures, no interest in hearing them read and preached, that's a good indication you've got a dead heart. It reminds you you're going to stand before the Lord and give an account one day. But the way that we do that with confidence is through faith in Christ. And he's never, ever going to turn anyone away. If we read this, this will be where I'll quit. We may rest assured that to reach heaven at last, it needs something more than to go to church regularly on Sundays and listen to preachers. The Word of God must be received into our hearts and become the mainspring of our conduct. It must produce practical impressions on an inward man that shall appear in our outward behavior. That's great. If it does not, it will only add to our condemnation on the day of judgment. May God's word make an impression upon you today to love him more, to love Christ more, and to be in the thick of the battle as you struggle to please him. Let's pray.